listening to Bits of Me, the podcast about women's bodies, all the things we should know about them, and all the stories behind them. In this episode, I talked to Sandy Connolly, an independent postpartum doula. Sandy was told that she would never be able to have babies, but then she went on to have a daughter, and subsequently she went through a number of losses. She shares her story of multiple miscarriages and secondary infertility, the grief, ambiguity and depression that followed, the ways she and her partner managed to find happiness again and the experience of coming to terms with being the mother of a singleton child. Let me just say as well that the sound in this episode isn't perfect. I had birds dancing on the roof of my studio and Sandy is the kind of talker who moves and gestures a lot. But I hope and think that it won't take away from the listening experience too much because Sandy is a real storyteller and a real joy to listen to. I hope you'll agree. So you were quite young when a doctor first told you that you might not be able to hold on to pregnancies or have babies. Um, And he was quite blunt in the way he told you as well. What went through your mind back then? I hadn't expected to hear a sentence like, you'll not be able to hold a pregnancy likely. And that was the way he said it, just like that and full stop. And I was devastated because I was in my early 20s. And I wasn't trying for a baby at that point. Myself and Mark were only recently together. <clears throat> but I definitely had seen children in my future. And mm. I wasn't naturally a maternal person. But I definitely saw, I definitely knew I wanted, you know, a squad of kids. Like I, I knew that, even though nobody would think that of me. Yeah. And it was, I didn't know what it meant, really. Mm. Except for that part of my femininity was then disappeared as well with that. Because it's so entrenched together, isn't it? Yeah. And you said to me earlier, you almost felt as though there was no place for you with this empty womb. You didn't know what your place would be in this world. Yeah. Yeah, because Mm. everyone expects the girl to get married and have babies. And, you know, that's what that's what's mapped out for you 40 years ago when you're young and little and female and that it's going to be this. And I didn't know people. I knew a couple of people, women without children. And everyone questioned what they were about, you know. So mm. in that moment, in that meeting, I left that room and it was a Friday afternoon. And I said, come on. I rang Mark and I said, come on, we'll go out for a pint. And we, <laughs> we went out in an almighty session because I didn't know what to do with that information. Yeah. And I didn't know how to feel about it. So I went on an alcohol bender, you know, and... Mm. Two days later, I completely lost my shit. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to respond. And I was angry and furious. And I was, there was a lot of shouting. Yeah. Because there's a grief to that loss in that moment that nobody minds you to when you go to a doctor's appointment. Yeah. I know you went on to explore different options like fostering potentially. Um, That's right. And then you got pregnant. That was in your 30s, was it? Yeah, I was just in yeah, my early thirties, and yeah, I don't know. I got pregnant. Uh, so she's called Juno because she's the goddess of fertility and the goddess of all goddesses. Because mm. she was the never meant to be child in our lives of our our own. Like you said there, exactly. We had started to exploring other options and and ways to bring children into our lives because we didn't see each other as a couple without children in our lives because we both love kids and we saw great parents around us and we we definitely didn't 
not want children, you know. Uh, so yeah, do you know was do you know I was in uh, I went up the north with my mum and dad. We went to our dentist up there, and uh, I nicked off into the pound shop, real glamorous, like you know, bought myself a pregnancy testing kit because I said there's something different here, and I don't know what it is. And I thought, God, this would be really weird if I was pregnant because I'm not supposed mm. to be able to get pregnant according to that doctor and those, yeah. you know, the, those things. And I was up in Uri or at Belfast and I was getting my teeth done and I was sitting in the dentist chair and I says to him, here, do us a favour, would you? Looked him dead in the eye, you know, and says, uh, <clears throat> don't take an x-ray today, would you? And he just looked back at me and he just says, OK. And, you know, it's probably 10 a penny. Like, they must be so used to it. You know, it's the same as any x-ray situation. So I went off and I had my teeth done and, and came back down to Dublin. And I went in the morning time and weed on the stick anyway. And sure enough, there was the old line. And I was like, oh, my God almighty, this is crazy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I didn't know, what, again, like there's a lot of, I don't know what to do with that in my life. Because, you know, you're told something and you kind of start preparing that yeah. in your head. And setting out your stall like that and figuring out other things. And then Mark came in. And I was going off to work and I was in my dressing gown. He's like, well, what's the story with you? And I uh, took out this pregnancy stick, handed it to him and said, right, I have to go to work. Uh, <laughs> and went inside, got dressed and went off to do a 14 hour shift in the restaurant. And that pregnancy was perfect. It was mm. perfect. It's been the most life changing thing that's ever happened to me. Becoming mm. her mom, you know, and like that, she's never expected to be here, really. Yeah. in our family like that it's mad yeah and it was a few years then before you got pregnant again yes were you trying at that point no we had we had stopped trying a long time we had never expected there to be a pregnancy mm. so we were definitely not not trying so I wasn't taking any contraception and we were in a very safe relationship together so we weren't using any protection or anything like that yeah and then you know when you've been pregnant, you can nearly feel it in your body. You can you can nearly feel the implantation happening. Or yeah. you feel your nipples are different. And you go, oh my God, what is that? And you know it before you've even done. If you've been mm. pregnant. Because I became very in tune with my body in my pregnancy with Juno. And I'm a person who breastfed her along until she weaned herself naturally. Mm. So you become very aware of these micro changes, don't you? Hmm. And so I felt this feeling and I thought, yeah, this can't be right. This can't be right. So again, I went off and I, I said, this time I said, come on, Mark, I, I, th- I think I might be pregnant. <laughs> and he says, what? I said, I know, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, never mind one pregnancy, but a few pregnancies. Yeah. And, and, to someone, like, that's the thing that I get really cross about, to that doctor and those tests that were so wrong and to have laid that misinformation in front of me mm. as a young woman and then subsequently to go on and think that you're infertile and then you get pregnant and then yeah. you can't hold that pregnancy. So then you're dealing with, but you have a baby, so it's cool. So then the concept of secondary infertility only came to my door quite recently, actually. I only became of what that was as a terminology. So tell me what happened. You you got pregnant again and then you had lower back pain or what how did it start? I did. I um so the details, as I've said to you before, the details are a little bit shady. So the memory isn't quite clear there. <clears throat> and I think that's I've learned subsequently that's to do with trauma and how we protect our brains. 
but I do remember the details of certain things and I do I, I'll always remember it's that great phrase isn't it that people remember how you made them feel not what you said yeah and I think the same can be said of a of a, a body's physicality and how we respond to things like that so what happened I was going to bed one night I was in bed and I I um I went to the toilet and then I saw this this tiny I was wiping myself and I saw this tiny tiny little spot and I thought oh my goodness I got so upset and I called Mark immediately and he came he it was a Friday night and he came back from the pub when we talk about the early signs of labor starting the mucus plug mm. that's that's nearly what I saw then when I after I saw in the toilet and I felt that's not right because then also there was the pains this this pain that I had experienced in my young adult life and my period pains and that yeah. lower you know that feeling that you get down there and you you hear about it and you hear about people laboring in their back and the pain and the mm. twisting and I thought this isn't right so Mark came home anyway and we got ourselves we we got ourselves into town and Juno got somewhere and it was a, a weekend night so the sonography kit was upstairs and the person we we arrived into the desk and we had we got checked in and they said why do you think you're having a miscarriage and I said like because I'm bleeding yeah and it's obviously not blood but but it is so I'm bleeding mm. and I and she said oh, and how many pads have you gotten through it's so matter of fact you know mm. it's like oh gee Jesus Christ and you stand there crying you're like do you want me to whip it out anyway no so the sonographer somebody came a midwife or a nurse came into one of the little tiny um, spaces that we were put into what after we had been waiting in the corridors and so this person told me that they couldn't check me because the sonography kit was upstairs and there was nobody to be able to use it on the Friday night. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've gone back and spoken with Hollis Street about this. I'm on the patient voice group and I, you know, I tend to use my voice when I can, where I can. So we've talked about this at length and there's been an incredibly positive change. Now it's not only down to me, of course, there's a whole heap of people working on these types of projects. Anyway, did we go stay in there or did we go home? We probably went home that night to have to go back in on the Monday morning. Yeah. And we were given an appointment then for um, a scan in the EPU, which is the early pregnancy unit. And aside from the, you know, the physicality of it, the reality of what was going on in that hospital was really, really hard. And there was a moment, there was a moment we had come out of the little room with the little brown door. We'd just come out of that and we'd just been told the news that there was... There was no sack and there was no heartbeat. And you're asked, are you okay? And you say, you say what you're told to say. You say yes. And they say, okay, well, yeah. go on away and we'll see you again next week to confirm everything. But it was the moment after that in the corridor that will stay with me forever. Yeah. Yeah. So we came out and closed the door behind us and there was two couples sitting opposite. And I just looked and I went, fuck, I'm so sorry, you know. And then my eyes locked eyes with this man, big tall man with brown hair and cream jacket and a, oh, the biggest smile you've ever seen across his face. Mm. And so we're in the National Maternity Hospital and somebody's smiling on the phone, which only means one thing, right? Yeah. So that man had just become a father, maybe the first time, maybe the fifth time, but you could see it clear as day on his mm. face. And then he saw me and Mark and his entire demeanour shifted. And his joy when he saw us turned to shame right in front of us in that moment. Yeah. That was the saddest thing. Mm. Along with, of course, there's the... Along with, 
I remember a friend of mine said to me that the minute you've had a pregnancy and you've had a live baby, the minute that you pee on a stick and you want that pregnancy and you see that stick change and you see the news there, immediately there you've you've possibly changed your car, you're buying another plane ticket, mm. you're at the kid's graduation. You know, all these things that immediately, that on your first pregnancy or your first baby, you don't quite get there until a little bit further along, along the line. So all of that really disappears. Mm. So then we went, I remember after that, we went back. We're really close with both sets of our parents and we're really lucky that we have both of them really close to both of us here in five minutes drive of our home. And so my mum and dad came and got me and Mark from the hospital. But before we did that, I... I went downstairs before I called them because I was due. I used to work in the restaurant business in hospitality. And so I was due in to work that night on the Monday night and I hadn't said anything to anybody. But I called up my restaurant manager and I said, I'm in the hospital. And she says, is everything okay?" And I said, no, not really. And she said to me, I've heard your news from one of the chefs. And I said, what? And she said, he told me that you asked not to have blue cheese in your dinner. And I said, I said, what? So I hadn't been prepared to tell work yet. Yeah. Because you know yourself as a woman and you're doing quite a physical job. Stuff happens, right? And at that point I hadn't, it wasn't, I didn't want to tell them yet. It wasn't their business and it certainly wasn't his business to tell somebody in the management of a company. No. So that was the start of a really tricky um, downward spiral in my work relationship. Mm. Uh, so I think I probably got signed off work maybe a week. You know, you've had a miscarriage, so we just... Maybe be a, a little while and you'll be fine again after that. Except I really wasn't. Um, mm. The weight that I didn't expect of the grief that comes and how it arrives in front of you. And, you know, people talk about a period being a light period, a, a heavy period, maybe a, a, a miscarriage. I think that really does us a huge disservice. Yeah. Because it isn't just a heavy period. No. There's a huge emotional story to it too, right? And it's that whole, come on, sure, get up back on the horse and all of this. Yeah, exactly. Things that people say and they expect you just to, you know, worse than having had a baby and bouncing back, you're expected to go on as if nothing had happened, you know? Mm. And so I worked in a really busy restaurant and I love, I loved working in restaurants. And I went in one of the days right after I was back. And it's that moment that you realise you can't do this anymore because mm. you just don't... And, and you know yourself, you worked in hospitality, so you know you have to give 150%. You, like if you're part of the management team in particular, you have to go in, you have to be full of spirit. You can't kind of drag in in last night's clothes because you went out in the piss and you didn't bother and you haven't had a wash and you're all miserable. Like you cannot do that in restaurant no. management work, right? No, you show up, you're full of energy, you're full yeah. of beans and it drips down your team, you know? And it's you have to be infectious to it and you have to be positive and you have to be full. Anyway, one of the days, lunch service, table 30B, a booth over there in the back and there was family in on the lunch and it was a steak restaurant and your man position three I can see it now he's in the booth one two three mum there dad there and his mum my customer called me over and I said hey how's it going and you know bend down onto the table level and down onto your hunkers and all that how's it going my child's steak is very tough and I looked at him I went in my head well, of course it fucking is. You've ordered a very well done steak. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm looking straight at her and I say, you know, <clears throat> restaurant hostess, what would you like me to do? And she said, I'd like a new one. So I said, okay. So I just reached in, leaned over. 
I said, excuse me, would you like me to take that for you? <clears throat> and he says, yeah. And he was hacking it. Like, he was hacking away. He would need a hacksaw to get through this thing. <laughs> it was, I could have eaten this, right? I'm a vegetarian and I, it wouldn't have mattered. It was so cooked. Anyway, I took it away and I brought it down to the pass. And it says, here, come over to me for a second. And he goes, what? And I said, uh, I have a complaint on this steak. And he goes, yeah, what's the complaint? And I said, uh, customers complained it's tough. And, I, and he says, <laughs> the chef says to me, exactly. And he says, well, now, Sandy, <laughs> it was a very, very well done steak. <laughs> and he says, I know. And he says, what do you want me to do? I says, I don't fucking care. Just give me a new one. I don't care. Hmm. And in that moment, I was standing at the pass at the back of a restaurant. And I just went, oh, my God, I don't care. And so that was the lunchtime shift. And you know yourself, you pull an L-double on the weekend and you crack on into the nighttime service. And there I was, and it was busy, and it was a hopping restaurant, really, really busy restaurant. So I got really lucky in the places that I got to work. So later on that night, my manager passed by me and said something to me. And I turned around and told her to go fuck herself. Just like that. (laughs) In front of a load of the staff. Yeah. And she said, what do you say? And I said, I don't fucking care. That is ridiculous. Go fuck yourself. I'm not doing that. Mm. And in between all of this, Mark had said there's something going on. And I went to see my doctor. Mm. And so they, I was going to leave, except I went to see my doctor to have a conversation because Mark is amazing. Right? <sighs> and he says, this isn't right. And so I went to have a conversation with my doctor and my doctor said, and I said, I'm going to leave. And he says, no. He says, hang on a second, let's think about this. And he says, Sandy, you've just had a miscarriage and you've gone back into a very busy, stressful environment and I'm going to sign you off with stress. Mm. And so at that point, I stopped working, having been signed off with stress. Mm. The reality of that was, the name isn't really, I'm not even certain, and I, I, I study in this and I work in this and I don't know what it is. Is it postpartum depression if you've, not given birth to a baby but you've got postpartum depression following a miscarriage and grief you know it's, mm. a, it's an interesting question that in mm. all the trainings that i've done and learned about nobody's really answered what the, the name is again mm. except because postpartum suggests that there's a live baby doesn't it well it's the same Sometimes. thing is it is it called a birth when you right? labor a not live baby it's all these yeah. terms are kind of made for the birth of a screaming Living. baby. Mm. Yeah. So it's really difficult. Now, it it wasn't that long before you then got pregnant again. So yeah. I suppose, was it six months to a year? No, it was probably more like a year. Mm. I had become quite unwell. And my mental health was really, it was really dark. It was hard. Like I said, that that sentence that was said to me when it's a wanted pregnancy and you have a a positive pregnancy test. The woman who told me that had had a stillborn baby, you know, Mm. nearly full gestation. And I thought the grace, it's 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 the most weird secret club because, you know, it's one in four known pregnancies. Yeah. And like I only knew that people in my life had had miscarriages after I had had a miscarriage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's shrouded in the same shame and stigma, nearly, as when you have difficulties with your mental health. Mm. And so I was signed off work with stress that subsequently I was signed off with depression Mm. because I I hadn't been to work for ages. And I was like, 
you can't be that stressed and not going to work for that long. Like, let's, I got really confident to it then uh, with my doctor. And I said, well, let's call a spade a spade and let's sign it off as depression because that's what it is. And he said, that's okay. So he really minded me well. And we would go in and Mark would come in with me and we'd have a check-in every week. And then it was every other week. And as I got better, it was every month and then every other month. Mm. But it was the toll of the grief that was with me and the weight of it. And my, my doctor, he's a beautiful man. And he's, you know, like he's, it's an oddity, isn't it? He's a man of science, but yet he's a, he's really compassionate. And he's skilled in what he does, in his listening. Like everyone knows, yeah. go into this doctor's office, you want to be waiting two hours possibly because he's a chatter, like I'm a chatterbox. Him and me <laughs> together, you could be like, we could be there all week, you know? Oh, how's everything? How's the baby? Oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, we had called that pregnancy. So we had a little what live wire of a kid and we had referred to that pregnancy as P. And there was something, because we had gone into our doctor and at these meetings and he had he had said, you know, things like, how have you thought about how you're dealing with this or how are we going to deal with this or are you okay with the medications or you know it was that point I got into CrossFit in my life because he pointed me to regular physical mental breath work exercise so yeah. what do you do in a misc do you really deal with it by lifting heavy weights off the floor yeah yes you know and it it was amazing because it was the moments of lifting weights off the floor allows nothing else in your space and mm. I just thought he he knows what he's doing right and so we had been, he was talking about rituals and I had this little box downstairs. There's a little black box. It's up in the corner of our shelves, up in our sitting room. It's got the pregnancy stick in there, the appointments for the EPU. And he talked about these things about, you know, physically putting them somewhere. So they're not just floating around the house and they catch you unawares. And he says, when you're ready. So it was probably, it was years later that I was ready to open that box, except I had to do it again. And he says, do you know that yellow plant? the bush out the front of our house Sandy and I says yeah 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 and he goes every time that flowers it makes it makes me smile because it remember I remember and I said what are you talking about and he goes but without that bush we wouldn't have our other child so there was another baby boy born into that home hmm. he says that would you you know maybe he'd plant a bush and I said don't be fucking ridiculous I'd kill it and we'd be devastated so I'm not putting <laughs> my finger down right I'm like, are you fucking mental? Are you mental? No way it would die. And we live in an apartment, so we haven't got a garden and all the logistical. I was just like, oh, God, God. And then so anyway, he got us into thinking about these kind of rituals and how we mark our grief and loss and things Mm. like that, which is something that had actually never come up for me. And it's a really, really cool thing. So Mark, my partner, is he's a really funny, outgoing you know, if you're at a party, you want to be in his company. He's a great guy, right? But he's also a really private man. Mm. And he probably won't listen to this. And then anyway, Mark is a, a man of tattoos. And then he came up with this, maybe a tattoo. And he was kind of fiddling with it for a while. He has Juno's, uh, she was born in the year of the rabbit, 2011. So he has, she, he has a rabbit here and her Roman numerals here. And so this story kind of continues a little bit into, we were on holidays one time. And I reach over there. Mark has prescription sun- sunglasses because he's blind as a bat. And I reached <laughs> over there and handed him his, his, went to hand him his case, but I kind of stepped ahead of four and just unzipped it and, and went to go in to hand him his sunglasses. And I saw this little petal and I said, oh my God. So that week right after I'd had that miscarriage, myself and Mark went for a walk down on Bray Seafront. We parked down in the harbour and then went to walk around onto the promenade. And there's a little 
there's a little row of railings just there and this most beautiful if i ever win the lotto this is where i'm going to buy it's one of these houses right mm. on the front on the seafront it's beautiful anyway we were walking along to go on a quiet walk and i just bent down and i swiped marigold out of the bushes there and i handed it to him and he smiled and i said i said mark it's just nice to see you smile again mm. there had been no smiling Life is hard when you're in the middle of all that. And so we were on holidays. We'd gone over to Canaries, this deadly hotel that suited us all. It was safe for Juno. It was a family-orientated hotel. And anyway, this day, and I caught a glimpse of this little orange petal. I said, what is that? What is that? You know, Mark, we were there about a week at this point. And so every single time he had put away or taken out his sunglasses, he would have seen that. And I didn't understand how he was able to do that. Mm. And I thought, I said, Mark, that's your tattoo. Put it on somewhere. Put it, let's think about that. That's it. That's it. That's, that's, what our, that's, that's what the doctor was talking about that day. That's it. Mm. And so then, there, Mark, so there's a marigold here and then interwoven into it is um, a stem of sweet peas. Mm. To represent our naming and the grief and that moment of happiness and the, the ritual of marking the pregnancy in our lives. Yeah. So things got... I never said to anybody that I um, had stopped working because I was being signed off work. We made this big, big farcical charade of... <laughs> I was now choosing to become a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. We were broke. There was no way you would do it. <laughs> Like, I know I like to live frugally and everything, but it was it was a testing time. Yeah. And it was really hard because we had no money and we had no joy in our life because every day in my life was an effort. And I was minding Juno and I found great comfort in, I was still breastfeeding her through all of this. and I, That was the only thing I was able to do, mm. you know? And things were getting a bit better and I was a bit more able. And she used to go off, like, I, I was really limited in my capacities as a person to mother her at this point. So we found this play school that would take her in the afternoon for a session. And one set of grandparents would come and pick her up in the day, three days a week. Then Mark would come home and she'd be delivered back mm. by a set of grandparents who would pick her up and bring her up. I don't know that they even realized that that was going on, you know, because we didn't speak about it. Cause there's this shame and stigma of not being well in your mental health. Yeah. And I think that, perseveres like I think there's so much in the landscape that has gotten better but I think there is a lot it's still really hard to talk about mm. you know people just think you get on with it mm. and you look happy so then yeah but it's taking eight hours to get ready to look you know mm. relatively human like dressed you know yeah do you want to tell me what happened what happened when you got pregnant again yeah so again I got pregnant again and um right the girl who could never get pregnant um, yeah exactly but it was that he was actually right because i i've only held one pregnancy yeah right so he wasn't really too wrong but anyway i got i got pregnant again and we hadn't we had like that again we still actively weren't not trying to be pregnant we were just not trying mm. to not be pregnant if that makes sense <laughs> and we got pregnant again but anyway one night Mark came in home and I'm I'm a pretty much into I'm a very much a night owl but he came into the room into the big room 
I was in bed and I was wrapped up into the pillows and he looked at me, he came in the door and he saw me in bed and he was, I could see him and he says, you okay? And I says, yeah, 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 I'm fine. And he says, what are you doing in bed? And I said, um, he says, are you okay? And I said, I don't think so. I don't know. So I could feel again, it was that pain in my lower back. Yeah. It was that twisting, the twisting and contracting of a really, really, really heavy period slash start of labor, you know, those early contractions. And how far along were you at this point? Do you know? Can you remember? I can't can't remember. No, I can't remember. Um, it wasn't particularly early. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't into full term. I wouldn't be classed as a stillborn. Okay. Right. So that's sometime less than 26 weeks, but more than 16. Okay. That it was that far along. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So I did this weird thing that I went, Mark came in and I don't know where Juno was. And again, it's the details are all a bit shoddy and mm. uh, muddled but because you don't remember these things. And But I do remember I was in bed and I knew I didn't feel right. And I knew it wasn't right because you just know, again, like we spoke about earlier, your ability to tune into your body becomes like a superhuman power. I don't know. Mm. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? And I was in bed and I was in there and where Juno was, I don't know whether she was in the house and just playing away or, you know, she could have been in the bedroom just over there, just messing around on the floor. But anyway, I said nothing and I said, I'm going to sleep and it'll be all okay tomorrow. And I'll let him sleep because I know this is going wrong, so it won't be okay tomorrow. And he needs to rest (laughs) because Mm. we mind our, we mind our partners and we mind our men and we forget about ourselves because we're ridiculous. So you kind of knew um, I knew at that point yeah yeah I knew at that night I knew at that moment and Mark knew at that moment and I went to the toilet later that night and I I saw the tiniest tiniest spot of blood and that's something mm. to talk about actually of pregnancy post loss it's a yeah. really anxious time every time you go to the toilet you check if there's spotting mm. or blood there and so we go to the toilet about eight or 10 or 12 times a day if you're, you know, going the way you're supposed to go to the toilet. And so for maybe eight or nine months, every time you go to the toilet, you've got this, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And it's ever present. Yeah. And it's so much to deal with, you know, and people wonder why you might be a bit snappy and it's not because of pregnancy mm. hormones. It's because you're going, oh my God, will this be okay? Will I be okay? <laughs> will I hold this baby in my arms, you know? And so I went to the toilet and there was the tiniest bit of blood. And the following morning I woke Mark up. I said, okay, it's fine. I'll go to bed. And But I didn't go to bed just like that. I went to bed having put those big sanitary towels in my pants. Mm. And I got into bed and I went into bed beside Juno. Uh, I must've gone into bed beside Juno. So she was here somewhere. So the following morning I woke up and I said, Mark, this isn't right. We need to go to the hospital. This isn't right. And Mark, mm. I only asked him there a while ago. And he said he knew because I was grey. He said he was going to get an ambulance. And I said, no, I don't need to bother the ambulance service. They're overstretched. And so we, so Mark didn't drive at this point, And I had asked him so many times to drive. And so we managed to get ourselves down to the village in Shankill, down to the garage. And we met Mark's mum. And maybe they brought us down from here and then they took Juno off. But I was insisting that I was getting on the 84 to get into town. Again, I was going to be under the care yeah. of the National Maternity Hospital. So we were going in there, so we were getting on the bus. 
and I was insisting there was no way I was getting in an ambulance and I don't know why. So we were on the bus and we were heading in for town. It's like if you had kids slime. You could feel that feeling rattling around inside of my body. Yeah. And it wasn't sitting right and my back was sore and twisting. And this is hard to hear now. We're coming up for Leeson Street. We just passed the um the Burlington Hotel there on the side and there's a little hatch there before you come onto Leeson Street. And then there was there's a restaurant right over on that side and I said to Mark, I said, We have to get off the bus and we have to get off the bus now and he said, What? And I said, We have to get off the bus. Stop tell the bus driver to stop the bus. And in that moment I felt everything come out of my body hmm. into my pants and onto the seat. It felt like you had a full balloon burst and just the contents yeah. just dropped. And Mark stopped the bus and the but the bus driver he took one look at me and he he pulled up the bus and he ran out of the bus and up the steps onto one of the offices there and started ringing the doorbell to get attention and they opened the door and there was a, a kid opened the door and oh my god it's only a young fella and they they immediately somebody passed him and they just I I managed to get down the steps and into the toilet block mm. and in the meantime I don't know how much, but there was, it was a lot. There was a mess. It was everywhere. As far as I could tell, it was everywhere. Again, who it was, when it was, I don't, the details, I don't know. And then I was being put onto the trolley by the ambulance. Now, I was mm. only on Leeson Street. Yeah, so you're only around the corner. Literally, yeah. you could, pa- you could, you know, if you're in town, you could cross it in yeah. two and a half minutes. Yeah. But they had had somebody at the desk had obviously called the ambulance service and the ambulances arrived and the crew arrived and they they got me and I was in in the ambulance and then I was then in the downstairs in the little white rooms with the big windows in Hollis Street and I was been treated immediately this guy you know that thing again it's you remember how somebody made you feel Mm. and this guy stood in front of me this beautiful guy with this Aussie accent and he just said I'm Steve I'm going to help you Mm. And he took, there was all these the crinkly blankets, you know, the shock blankets. Yeah. There was about 12 of them wrapped in me. Yeah. Me, me wrapped in them because I had lost so much blood. Hmm. And so the next memory that I have is that I was upstairs in a big room and I was by myself. There was like, there was nobody else. It was, there was probably eight beds in the hmm. ward and it was nighttime and the wind was, it was rattling, rattling through the building. I was in there and I had been told that I was possibly tomorrow going to have to go for a surgery. Okay. And I didn't know what that meant and they didn't explain anything. And it was really scary because medical people can sometimes, and I don't want to be disparaging at all because I put my trust in the National Maternity Hospital. Mm. I was having my daughter Juno and subsequently I trust medical people. Mm. But when you're not told details or information... That makes things really difficult to understand. So you were pregnant in the second trimester at some point and you had lost all this blood and you came in and you didn't know whether you had miscarried or not. They didn't tell you so what? Some, no. no. So more than that, because they might have scanned me that day or it might, it might have been the day, the following day. I can't, the details aren't there. I don't know. They said everything was really disrupted. Mm. and I I didn't know what that meant 
And then I was told I was going to have a surgery and I didn't know what that meant. The naivety of it all, right? This is the whole point of this whole thing, isn't it? That why don't we know what these things mean? Why aren't we told? Yeah. And it, it probably turns out that they couldn't tell me because the language wasn't allowed to be used. Yeah. Right? Mm. So I was there and I was in the room that night and I decided that night that I was going to ask Mark to get married. Mm. And I have lived my entire life. I'm never getting married. I don't need to be married to anybody. We don't need that piece of documentation. But it turns out you actually do when you have a child together and a home together. And I was lying in that bed that night thinking, if I have to go for a surgery tomorrow, like you couldn't do anything about it unless you brought the person in that moment, right? But Mm. if I had to go for surgery tomorrow and I don't make it out of that surgery, my daughter, Mark's daughter, would probably have a next of kin issue because legally her next of kin would be my mom. So you mentioned this earlier and I was just gobsmacked. Is a child's biological father not their next of kin if their biological mother dies now it has changed wow right right but that's right that's only five years ago yeah right Mm. so because we lived in a non-married relationship with a child regardless of if i had we had had a a, um, guardianship agreement signed Mm. right after gina was born because i was aware of this because of stuff that had happened in my family but that could be challenged Mm. so i was lying in a hospital room (laughs) having had half, probably more than half of my blood left my body that day. And maybe you'd call it that it was a response to that, but actually I was protecting my family. And because we were married and potentially Juno could get taken off Mark and then potentially because we don't have a whole heap of savings at that time, mm. never mind he would just lose his daughter. He would lose the family home because the tax man would come knocking. And because we weren't married, God. the inheritance tax figure mm. would be... That could warrant him homeless and daughterless and partnerless. So in that night, I, I had decided and, and we did get I did ask Mark to get married in a very embarrassing place for him. And <laughs> we did get married that October and I organised it in five or six months. And we were married in the October, the Halloween yeah. bank holiday weekend. But the thing that's really tricky here is we were in, in a room. I was in there. And I didn't have to have the surgery the following day, it turned out, because whatever happened, had happened. But they were scanning me and the person who was the sonographer, and I wrote, I wrote to the hospital, we've talked about it at length, and to the point that somebody else who works in the hospital knew who I was actually talking about, but couldn't say it, right? Mm. The manner. So the person who was scanning me was scanning and was looking and said, said those words, I'm just going to get my colleague to check. And then we were dumped out into the corridor. There's fucking corridors in that hospital. Like they yeah. really need to get on with building a new hospital that isn't a rabbit, rabbit warren or corridors. So we were left out in, on a seat, the two of us, with no confirmation of whether I was pregnant or whether I wasn't pregnant. Mm. And when the person's colleague came in that time, their colleague couldn't confirm or not confirm that there was a viable heartbeat or viable sack at that moment. Mm. And then... So you just didn't know? Nobody knew if I was pregnant or not. Wow. But, and then I was told I could take these tablets. Oh, yeah. Here we are. This is yeah. the moment you told me about the change to your life. Yeah. I was given, here's some tablets, you can take these. 
and that's going to rupture any membranes. This is the language, right? Mm. Again, remembering it's a pregnancy that probably wasn't expected to happen and definitely was wanted. Like we definitely decided, yeah, we're going to have another baby. This would be great. And like I've talked to Juno about bits and the bobs of this and she knows it was never expected for her to be a singleton child, right? Mm. And I know she's only nearly nine and people might think that we're bonkers, but that's our choice, the way we're informing her about stuff like that. So I was handed these tablets and told, you can take these and you can rupture any membranes. And so I wonder about what was going on there because I looked at them and I said, I'm not completely tick, right? And I saw what it was and I said, if you were giving me these tablets in another country, would you be giving me the tablets to have an abortion? Mm. And he, he said to me, I can't answer that question. I can't tell you that answer. And so I was asked to take this tablet, this one tablet, I was told to put it in here in the, the cheek of my mouth yeah. and to, to let it dissolve and to swallow it down the little bits and to make sure to have maybe a sandwich to make sure it all gets taken. Mm. You know, only now I know what that means, right? Mm. So I actually refused to take those tablets because I mm. said, you can't tell me, you can't fucking tell me if I'm pregnant or not. Yeah. So what am I doing? Here's the conflict in my brain. What yeah. am I doing if nobody can tell me if I'm pregnant or not? And yet you're giving me tablets to rupture a membrane of a mm. wanted pregnancy. What in Christ is that about, right? And so I refused point blank to take the tablets in front of the person. And I says, no. And in the meantime, while the, while the colleague was going on out here and we were outside in the, in the hallway, I had been messaging a friend of mine who was going to come and help me with Juno. And I was saying that we were in the hospital and we weren't really sure what was going on, but we might be here a while. And so she was figuring out. And then in the background, in the background, a great friend of mine decided to say, maybe you need to go to somebody else to get it confirmed or not. Mm. So we went to a private fertility clinic who usually only work with families who are married and all of this stuff. And I wasn't going mm. to question that. Right. I'm like, OK, that's fine. It wasn't the point to be challenging stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Because I just wanted to know, was I pregnant or not? And what was they asking me to take? So we went up and, and my friend booked me an appointment. She gave me the number of the nurse that worked in the in the clinic. And then she got me an appointment pretty quickly. Like I think it was the following day or the day after that. There was an appointment. It's someplace up in the beacon. Right. Mm. But could not tell you. <laughs> and isn't that like, isn't that powerful that I don't know where it is. And it's the most, one of the most important places I've ever been. Mm. Like, if you put me in the beacon, I couldn't tell you where we went to. And so... We went to this this man and he scanned me and he was he, we were telling him what was going on and he was going this is great this he, it didn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense right mm. I, I don't understand I just still don't really understand it but he was saying okay I'm going to scan you and while I'm scanning scanning you I'm going to do a follicle check and we're going to count and we're going to look and we're going to see and I'm, I said to him no just please scan me and tell me is there a viable pregnancy is there a viable heartbeat or not mm. you need to know this. And so he was so gentle as well. He warmed the rod. I don't know how he did that, but he warmed the... Mm. So it, it's an internal scan with a, a, a mini ruler. It's like a big yeah. dildo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In length, except it's In really length, skinny. Exactly. Like, an, like, an, like, a, like a chunky wool knitting needle. Yeah. Oh, sorry, there's a better description. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so he was... But he was so patient with me and, you know, warmed the place to get up and sit on and so anyway he said that no there wasn't a viable pregnancy and I asked him about the tablets and he said that that would be rupturing and that you would be taking miso and miffy 
which mm. are effectively the abortion pills. The abortion pills, yeah. That were illegal to be passing through in Ireland in 2015. Yeah. So under particular circumstances, they're vacating. So what they were trying to do was take away all of the rest of the membranes mm. because they what so so they weren't doing anything wrong because they were trying to get rid of the the leftovers if you want for want of a better word all the mm. all the different bits and pieces that were still floating around inside of my womb because it can be really dangerous for them to be left in and I understand mm. that now but I didn't understand it then yeah and that again led to quite the downward spiral mm. and myself and Mark not having any kind of intimacy like we I won't, at a point in it we weren't even we hadn't held hands or touched each other or kissed because and we were both thinking this independently it turned out if you don't hold hands with somebody and you don't kiss them you probably won't get naked and have sex and if you don't mm. have sex you can't get pregnant and if you can't get pregnant you can't yeah. have a miscarriage right yeah there's a quite a powerful snapshot of a conversation you had with your very kind, lovely doctor about this when you made a decision that might sound a bit strange to people who know that you really wanted wanted a sibling for Juno. Um, do you want to tell me? Yeah. What played out? With all of this going on, and we we realized at some point, and Mark just said, "We can't keep doing this. We can't keep doing this. A relationship isn't sharing a home with someone. It is there is a sexual piece to that story, right? And an intimacy. Mm. And so, then Mark said, "What about if?" I get a vasectomy. <laughs> and it was like, it was like the first time I ever saw him again. I just fell madly in love with him in that moment again. I just went, oh my God, you're fucking amazing. <laughs> because the sheer panic, and he said it recently, we were out for an anniversary dinner of a miscarriage event. And we went out for dinner and he said, like, I, just, I just could not see somebody that close to death again in all of that. Yeah. And so we went to the doctor. And so Mark is four years younger than I am. So we booked in and we said we wanted to get referred for a vasectomy. And our doctor said, okay, but I want to talk to you first. I need to talk to you. And there was there was a conversation being had. And, you know, it was, well, what do you think about this? And what about that? And, and our doctor said, I'm going to ask you a question. And I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be a very specific answer that will say yes, because Mark is that young. And I'm a geriatric mother at this point, remember. I'm an L1 on mm. spent. You know, everyone's like, yeah. oh, wow, you're like post 32. So what are you doing? Anyway, so the question runs like this. What happens if Sandy dies and you meet somebody else and that somebody else wants to start a family with you? Mm. And Mark simply looked up and he said, without missing a beat, he said, I don't ever want anyone to be pregnant again so that they can have that happen to them again. Mm. And the referral letter was written and Mark had the vasectomy. Yeah. And it was the best thing that ever happened in our relationship, aside from our daughter coming mm. into our lives. It immediately, a weight was lifted off the two of us that we knew this was happening. Yeah. And there was a freedom to it. It doesn't make sense looking in, right? That a couple who definitely wanted to have babies would decide actively and he's like Mark said, you know, well, you've been you've been on on the pill since you were 12 or 13. So yeah. maybe it's my responsibility at this point. Yeah. And it's a lot easier for a man to have a vasectomy than a woman to have a tubal litigation, which they won't yeah. do until a certain point anyway. Right. Mm. So the thing about it is 
you can have a miscarriage and it's really upsetting and it's really hard and it's really difficult and there's the physicality of it and there's the emotional response to having a miscarriage and then having made a decision not to have any more attempts at pregnancy at all ever there's a grief that comes out of nowhere aside from the anger and that you know there's that cycle of grief naturally when somebody dies mm. but then there were things like you'd be down the playground and you'd see a couple of kids who were clearly brother and sister playing together and I remember standing in the playground one day watching this and the tears just started rolling down my face because yeah. I had actively actively taken that as a possibility away from my daughter not to say mm. that everyone has perfect relationships with their siblings but there is something in siblinghood mm. Particularly in little ones, you know? Yeah. And there's the grief that comes with then realise... It's a realisation and a grief that you're never going to feed a newborn baby. You know, and I mm. fed Juno until she was five. But that's not the same, a walking, talking person as a newborn baby and that experience. Or you're never going to feel those flutters in your belly again. Or you're never going to mm. see yourself with that rounded belly. And you're never going to give birth again. And again, it comes back to that, what we talked at the very beginning of that, the grief and the loss of femininity. Now, mm. I hadn't had a hysterectomy, but I, we've definitely made a decision in our home. Mm. And it can impact you in the strangest of ways. Like there was a person in my life who became pregnant right around the time Mark had the vasectomy. And after she gave birth, I found I couldn't go and visit mm. with the new baby. And I didn't know what ha- I didn't go and visit this these people until like the baby was six weeks old. Yeah. And we were sitting in her sitting room and the baby was over there. And it was a big, big white elephant over there in the room. No, it was. Yeah. And she called me out. She says, what the fuck? Where have you been? And yeah. I said, oh, I couldn't come. She says, what do you mean? You're only down the road. What are you talking about? And I said, I didn't expect. I'm really sorry. I did not expect to feel what I felt when it's someone that's that close to you. Because they're going to be, those babies are going to be in your life. But it's not about that baby. It's about knowing and it really knocks on your door of, I will never have that again. And it's so final. Mm. And I said to that person that day, and I said to her, I said, look, I said, I know you knew that we made a decision to have a vasectomy. Like, we did not keep that a secret by any means. Mm. Like, no more than the next time I was pregnant. Like, the last time I was pregnant. I told people I was pregnant when I was two weeks pregnant. Yeah. And people thought I was nuts. And I said, but if we need that, it is never a harder sentence than saying to someone, I was pregnant, but I'm not pregnant now, but I didn't tell you. So now, like, it's... Mm. and yeah. you shouldn't have to say that out loud until you're ready, that you've, you've had a miscarriage or you've had a stillborn baby. But then if you put those people, people thought I was bonkers. And I said, but then those people will be there if something happens. And it did happen and we did need them. Mm. You know? Yeah. And those people... Some of the people, again, that showed up were people that I didn't expect to show up Mm. and people that didn't know what to say. The really quiet moments in loss of comfort and being minded. And it is a really difficult thing. You know, people don't know what to say, but definitely things not like at least you can get pregnant. At least, you know, you got pregnant or, you know, you already have a baby. Sure, you're great. Or back up on the horse, back into the like, you know, that one back into the saddle. Like, oh. Yeah, how inappropriate. Never mind anything, but your entire uterine area is sore and painful. And mm. like Fela Cohn talks about, the tears that are never shed are going to be the hardest felt down the road. 
you know, it's one of the organizations that supports people in pregnancy loss and, and stillborn babies. And I really believe that, that crying, crying is good for your soul and for, you know, those big, hard grief tears. Mm. And there's a lot more then, you know, there's a, there's a lot, it takes a lot to process it and figure out. I was out going to ask that, um, is that grief still very much there? I'm definitely a lot better than I was. It, it gets less hard, really, mm. right? It gets less difficult. We always mark ourselves, we always mark the anniversary dates. So that's the due dates in our home. It's the due dates and the dates of the losses. Yeah. We do, we light a candle. And there's one that's particularly hard that falls in in the same week as um, Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Week, which is in the middle of October. And it fell on the same day. It was to be a triple birthday in our house. Anissa, nephew, and the new baby were supposed to be mm. sharing the birthday. So it's, it was really bittersweet and really hard that first few years. But I think like the experience, as hard as it was and as difficult and as dark as it was, it sounds a weird thing to say, but I'm definitely a better person for it. The experiences have taught me and Mark. And like Mark has never talked about it. He won't talk about it. And he says, you know, but I nearly saw you die. And I never thought about that until really recently, that he was there looking in, mm. not able to help, you know, that that must be. Which is why he offered for the vasectomy, of course, then, because it makes sense. Yeah. yeah? Mm. You know? But it becomes, it. it's part of your story. You don't necessarily go around crying every day, but you can be sad and it can catch you unawares, you know, you could see something or something could happen that will bring you right back into that moment of the sadness rather mm. than at this point, it's not anger anymore. And, you know, at this point, I've learned how to support people in it. And I'm about, you know, it's about opening up these conversations and learning how to mind people in it and talking about it because it's one in four known pregnancies are miscarried. Mm. So it's really, really commonplace, but we don't give it its due respect as its impact, you know? And that's why I wanted to talk with you about this, really. That was Sandy Connolly on Bits of Me. You can follow Sandy on Instagram at Sandy Doula or join the private Facebook group, Sandy Connolly Doula, Your Virtual Village, both of which are sources of great support, advice and community. And if you need a postpartum doula, someone with experience of loss and difficult pregnancy journeys, definitely get in touch with Sandy. You can follow Bits of Me on Instagram and Twitter, both of which I'll link in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, reviewing and sharing helps a lot. Thanks for listening. <laughs>